welcome everyone to this discussion on team moves. So I don't know about you, but we often see times of uncertainty bringing movement in a lot of different professional services and financial services sector, whether that's by individual lateral hires, associate moves or team moves. But team moves bring with them particular challenges and they can be fraught with difficulties, not only commercial difficulties and business difficulties in integrating teams, choosing the right team, finding out if that team's going to work or not, thinking about the strategy of your business and whether that's a particular type of work that you want to bolt on. But they also bring with them some legal risks and issues. And so we're going to talk about all these issues today. I am joined by a really interesting panel today. First up, I've got Rob Millard. Rob is um, a director of the Cambridge Strategy Group. So that's a professional services management consultancy firm. And he's been advising professional services firms for a number of years in relation to law firm strategy and innovation. And so he's very well placed to talk to us about whether or not team moves are in fact a good or bad strategy. We've then got David Fisher, who's one of my partners at CM Murray. David is an employment and partnership lawyer with particular focus and expertise on um, contentious matters, in particular in the High Court. So as a result of that, a lot of team move and breach of restricted covenant cases come across David's desk. And he's very well versed in tackling them from both sides and also resolving them. And I've got Wanu Sanda, who's an associate solicitor in our team as well at CM Murray. Wanu is a solicitor and a solicitor advocate with a particular interest in high court litigation and often is alongside David when tackling team move litigation and restricted covenant litigation. So again, he's very well placed to share her expertise with you all. And I've got Gail McManus, who is the founder and managing director of PER Recruitment, a specialist private equity recruitment firm. Gail was previously in private equity and then transitioned into recruitment in the late 1990s and does a huge amount of recruitment in this sector and so can share with us her experience and expertise from the financial services sector. Jonathan Cohen is our final panellist. Jonathan is a QC at Littleton Chambers, again does a huge amount of high court litigation in the employment and commercial crossover area, so has had a number of team move and restricted covenant cases that we've worked with Jonathan on and he is one of the leading practitioners in this area. So I'm going to kick off first of all by looking at whether in fact team moves are a good idea. So we will go on to you know, all the problems that come along with them, but before you even get to that stage, you probably want to know if it's a good strategy for your business. And I think that will vary very much dependent on the business, but also depending on the sector. And so Gail, it'd be interesting to hear from you whether or not in private equity, that is considered a good uh, business strategy to expand by way of bolting on teams, or whether in fact it's not often that successful. Yes, so uh, good morning, everybody, and um, thank you, Sarah, for inviting me to join the panel today. Uh, well, it's a high-risk, um, potentially high-return strategy, I would say, and because of all the areas that you pinpointed earlier, they're not that common. Um, however, there are some circumstances where team moves can be used very effectively within a private equity setting and that is usually where the organization is trying to add something to its business it might be a new area of focus for example they want to build a fintech team or occasionally it might be related to geography although you'd rarely see a whole team being set up in a new geographical location unless there was someone from head office 
going to join them and keep an eye on them. So it's a high risk strategy, fraught with danger. And I would say that if we're working on any searches at this sort of partner or team level, 50% of them never, ever complete. Very difficult thing to do. Going to Rob, in the legal sector and the professional services sector, do you see firms using team moves as an effective strategy for expansion? Uh, yes, I think everything that Gail said applies in law firms as well. It is high risk and potentially a high return. I've heard more than one law firm leader over the last three years bemoaning the fact that they happen and talking about that they weren't always the case. But uh, I think as in many things in law, they are referring to some golden age of law, which is about 20 years before anybody can remember. Certainly, there were a slew of, uh, of team hires and lateral movements leading up to the global financial crisis in 2009. So back even in 2008 and 2007, uh, there were plenty. There was one London firm that had a whole team uh, leave for uh, a TMT leave, uh, leave for another firm. And instead of letting them serve their garden leave at home, they actually made them come into the office every day and occupy an empty floor and uh, to, to discourage other uh, defections. So, so they're contentious, uh, especially for the leaving firm, of course. And we're going to get into detail later about what can make them more successful, but uh, a good many of them fail. Failure can be defined as that team leaves again. It can be defined as they don't meet the expectations. Uh, they don't bring the book of business they promised. All sorts of reasons, but they don't meet expectations within, say, a two-year time frame. Thank you. And in terms of geographical expansion, are team moves something you see people using to expand into different regions? Gail, how does it work in financial services? So I suppose there's two options, really. One is to attract a team from an organisation that's already successfully established in that geography, or the other is to buy a book, so an organisation in whole, to start your business over there. I think when we were uh, talking earlier in the week about this, you know, I gave a little example of some of the Canadian pension funds who had come to set up in Europe. And in the early stages of um, setting up in Europe, they found to their cost, actually, that the team move, while on the face of it, was a really successful way of establishing a group of people on the ground very quickly. Uh, their loyalties, or not even their loyalties, but potentially their best practice and relationships, was something that they held within themselves and not within their uh, wider organizations. So they didn't hold the relationships with the head office to make it a successful thing. So those teams actually were abandoned and the organization started again. So, you know, again, it's another example of whereby one of the issues with the team is they have their own culture, not necessarily the culture of the organization that they're joining. Rob, I suppose two questions to you. One, do you think geographically it's something that people use to expand in the legal sector and professional services sector? But also, do you see any trends during an economic downturn for the use or not of team moves? Uh, well, firstly, the geographic expansion. I, I see it for growing a presence once it's been established, far less frequently for, as a market entry strategy. Uh, there have been exceptions uh, where the team is very well known to the firm that they join. Alan and Overy's entry into South Africa is a good example where they started with a banking team. In terms of during a downturn, yes, there's definitely more movement. And what often happens is that's exactly the time that the top talent in average firms becomes more mobile and the, and the top firms, the stronger firms, are starting to think, are there teams around that we can bring in that would not otherwise be available um, because those teams are perhaps looking at their firms 
and wondering what the future holds. I mean, we, we mustn't forget law firms are very fragile businesses. They've got very thin balance sheets and, and high fixed costs. So it doesn't take too much of a dip in revenue for uh, top earning teams to start thinking, uh, is there perhaps a better platform for me mm. out there? One of the areas where team moves we've seen most successful in private equity actually is where they're not going somewhere else. They're actually leaving to set up on their own. And in that case, they're only really fighting one battle, right? They're only fighting the battle of their departure. They're not also fighting the battle of their entry into the new organization. So those tend to be the more successful group departures. And Gail, you know, in terms of looking at when times are tough, you mentioned when we were talking before that that can actually make it a little bit easier for people to um, leave in private equity because what they're leaving is potentially worthless. Yeah, so one of the big problems with private equity, there's two big problems really. One is a compensation scheme, their carried interest makes it very difficult to leave. And the second is non-competes are usually very, very long. So in times of uh, turmoil where um, compensation packages or carried interest is worth less, then there's more opportunity to negotiate. So to become a good lever makes all the difference in the world. If you can leave with things intact, your non-compete to a manageable period, then you have much more freedom as to what you do. But of course, that's an individual. Making it a team is really an extra added layer of complication. Mm. Yeah, not necessarily an easy thing to do. And um, so we're going to come on a little, little bit later to uh, reasons why it works and, and top tips from the team's perspective and from the new firm's perspective to integrate that team. Before we do that, let's get a little bit legal for 9.15 in the morning and um, think about some of the key legal risks. So I think one of the first things we would always say to a team who would come to us for advice where there's a partner and potentially more than one partner and some more associates or other junior members of the team is well you know we want to see the written documents we want to look at what obligations they're subject to and then we often just give them that devastating news and so Wanu what sort of obligations do you typically see people being bound by who might be coming to see you looking to do a team move? Thanks Sarah and, and morning everyone and so as Sarah said the first place that you tend to look will be the partnership agreement or the membership agreement and that will usually set out some key express obligations that will apply prior to any departure and that usually are triggered when a team moves afoot. So things like good faith, the obligation to promote the success of the firm and to give a true and fair account. So if it looks like something odd is going on and a partner is asked you know, what is going on, that sort of express obligation would require them to tell the firm if they are uh, organising a team move. There's also the statutory duty of disclosure, which is an obligation which doesn't arise from the membership agreement and also requires partners or members to disclose true and full accounts of all things that relate to the business of the partnership. Um, and often that's excluded in the membership or partnership agreement, but it is worthwhile checking just in case. And even if you know, you check your agreement and there isn't anything in there, very unlikely, but there isn't anything in there um, that might curtail uh, your conduct whilst you're still a partner. It's very likely that you will still have implied duties. And that's where a lot of people trip up and actually are quite surprised when they hear the extent of what those obligations mean. The key obligation really is your obligation as a fiduciary and applies automatically in partnerships, as many people know. And in LLPs, it will depend on the circumstances. 
but what that gives rise to is where the difficulties come so people are quite familiar with the no profit rule the no conflict rule but the most difficult rule is the rule of having a single-minded loyalty because essentially what that will require you to do is not only to disclose wrongdoing that you may see as a partner you know if you see somebody organizing a team move or someone within your team and you become aware of that you having to disclose that to the firm but also your own wrongdoing so if you start tripping up on your contractual obligations and do something that you're not supposed to do your obligation is to go and fess up about that and, and go and tell the firm about that and then even further than that you've got an obligation to tell the firm if you suspect or if somebody wants to leave in a team move you've got an obligation to go and tell the firm that and once you yourself have come to a firm decision that you want to leave you've also got to go and tell the firm so there are all of these different situations where you know these obligations are triggered that are going to make team moves very difficult thanks Wanu. it sounds like a bit of a minefield it basically means you have to just stay what about express obligations i mean what types of things would you see actually written into those documents that you mentioned so those would be your obligations of, of good faith that would usually be um, written into the document and because there are many aspects of that the obligation of good faith is Im usually implied but if it's expressed within the uh, membership agreement or the partnership agreement then usually there'll be some elements you know telling you that you have to promote the success of the business and if you are promoting the success of the business and there's a threat to the success of the business for example a competitor coming along trying to take a team um, and trying to take you with them that's something that you'd be obligated to tell the firm about and once someone leaves let's say that they can navigate all that complicated um, position and they actually get through to the other side what types of things would you see getting in their way in terms of immediately moving and starting work at the new firm? So once you leave as a partner, if there aren't any express obligations, there is at least one implied obligation that will prevent your ability to conduct yourself once you're at the new firm or once you've set up your own new business. And that's an implied restriction on soliciting clients. So you still, still can't just go to your new firm and start raiding on the old clients, contacting everybody, putting out LinkedIn, you know, invites, that's just not going to run because you've still got your implied obligations. But separate to that, lots of firms will obviously have their post-termination restrictive covenants, which will cover the kind of whole range of non-solicitation, usually non-dealing, and non-solicitation of both colleagues and of clients. And then there's also the implied duties relating to confidential information. So those continue even after you've departed, if the information essentially amounts to a trade secret. So you've got to be very careful. And I think to, to touch on sort of how that might have affected things prior to leaving, I know when we were speaking earlier, Gail had mentioned occasionally recruiters may, for example, ask a partner potentially looking to leave for references for example client references so that they could go and check out their track record now you can see that's going to easily engage some of the obligations that you own in relation to confidential information because the information about the clients are proprietary and they are confidential to the firm and so there would usually be restrictions on you sharing that and disclosing that to a third party thank you so these are all obligations but i suppose what people want to know when they are planning a team move or thinking about a team move is well does it matter because what happens if i breach these obligations are the consequences that bad or in fact am i commercially better to just breach them and then just go and set up in my new firm and make a big success of it and then it doesn't matter so much 
Jonathan, what are the risks if someone was to breach those obligations and duties that one is discussed? So I represent both partnerships and partners, but let's, for the moment, look at the situation from the perspective of the moving partner. The first and most significant difficulty is the almost inevitable covenant against competition that one will find in the LLP members agreement. And it is unhappy, I think, that the attitude of the courts to covenants against competition in LLP members agreements is that they are in some way different as a general rule to those that you find in employment contracts. The court takes a more relaxed view of the enforceability of those non-compete covenants. And it all flows from an old Hong Kong case called Bridge and Deacons, which I think, if I remember correctly, is now about 30-odd years old, maybe more. And, and Bridge and Deacons enforced a covenant of the sort of breadth that it would be absolutely impossible to enforce in an employment situation. But the view taken by the Privy Council was that LLP members, partners, whatever they may be, they own something. They are more like vendors of a business than they are workers. I think we all recognize that in most cases, that is not a fair description of an LLP member. They are much closer to employees than they are partners, business owners, I should say. Bridge and Deacons did not find itself considered very much in English authority uh, until quite recently. And a case came along called Carmichael. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It was a PWC case. And in Carmichael, a commercial court judge just breezily said, oh, well, Bridge and Deacons says that you treat these covenants differently. So I'm going to grant an injunction. That injunction was granted off to an arbitration. So, of course, the world doesn't know what happened in the arbitration, whether the arbitrator there said, oh, but Bridge and Deacons doesn't matter one bit. This looks like an employment situation and therefore the covenant's unenforceable. What we're all left with is a reported decision of a commercial court judge, which simply says in a few short lines, it's all Bridge and Deacons, it's different. And so this to bridge and deacon's doctrine lives on. And what it's led to, in particular, are professional services businesses who in their members' agreements will often impose non-compete covenants, which would not be enforceable in an employment situation. And they are a real risk for moving partners, because the reality is if the moving partner breaches, they will almost inevitably be subject to an interim injunction by the court, and the matter will then have to be resolved in an arbitration. It will either settle before an arbitration happens, or it will take some weeks, potentially in a complex case, some months to come on for a hearing. And during that period of time, the partner is kept out of the market. So first and foremost, the biggest risk is the most simple one. It's an injunction to enforce a post-termination non-compete covenant in the members' agreement. Then we have what is classically called the springboard injunction. Now that's an injunction that's designed to strip away a competitive advantage, which has been obtained by virtue of a breach of duty. If the moving partner 
steals the Rolodex, if that doesn't sound too old-fashioned in the modern world, or if the moving partner acts as a recruitment sergeant for juniors, then there's the potential for an injunction which strips away that competitive advantage. In other words, it puts the partner and indeed potentially the new firm back in the position they would have been in if they hadn't stolen that competitive advantage in breach of duty in the first place. We then come on to damages. I'll call it loosely damages because more commonly, the remedy against the defaulting partner is either an account of profits or the stripping of remuneration. So let me deal with each of those things. First of all, account of profits. That operates where the partner, as a result of a breach of duty, has made a profit that they would otherwise not have made. In those circumstances, what the court does is strip away that profit and pay that profit back to the firm who suffered the breach of duty. So if you are a partner who calculates that actually you will make a profit by virtue of a breach, you know, don't worry about the consequences because the pot of money that you will make as a result will more than outweigh your costs of litigation or the damages suffered by the firm from which you leave. That's a pretty bad calculation because you can be made to give up, to disgorge that profit. The second issue, and it's quite a contentious issue, is forfeiture. Defaulting fiduciaries, of which partners are one category, can be required to give up, or alternatively, the firm has good grounds not to pay remuneration to that fiduciary, because the remuneration is in exchange for loyalty. If there is no loyalty, there is no right to remuneration. Now, all of that is very clear in law. What isn't so clear is how you draw the line between what is properly remuneration and what is properly a profit share. In other words, what is the partner or the LLP member being paid for their services? And what are they being paid as a share of profits based on their ownership interest? And what the cases of late have said is that there may be some cases in which even a profit share can be forfeited. Because even though it might be called a profit share, what you have to do is look at the substance of it and not the form. And if in truth you are receiving the profit share as a form of remuneration, then you may lose all of it. So forfeiture of remuneration, if I loosely call it remuneration, is a big risk for the moving partner, particularly those who are very highly remunerated. In my practice, I see two particular instances where these things come around. First, as I've said, there is breach of that non-compete covenant. That really is the most common area where partners get into trouble. And in due course, we'll look at why it's so important, therefore, to have non-compete covenants in a member's agreement. The second area where partners get into trouble, and again, we'll come back to it shortly, is senior people acting as recruitment sergeants for the juniors. It's an almost inevitable temptation that if you are a senior partner and you have junior people working for you who are really good 
doers, if I can put it that way. You know, they get the work done in a competent way and save you from doing it. They know how you work. They know your clients. There's an inevitable temptation to want to take them with you. And as soon as those sorts of conversations begin, you're in trouble. And that leads to the whole suite of remedies being available against potentially you, possibly the firm you are moving to, if the firm has some knowledge or awareness or has encouraged that, and the juniors who you are proposing to take with you. But we will come back to that later. Thanks, Jonathan. And just before we move on completely from this, what about recruiters? What sort of liability are they taking on by uh, getting involved and putting the team together and working with that recruiting sergeant? This old chestnut has been around for a long time. I have people coming to see me and they say, look, I, I really want to take X, Y and Z with me. But obviously what I don't want to do is approach X, Y, and Z because that would be a breach of my fiduciary obligations. So how about I get on the phone to Mrs. X, the recruitment consultant, and I have a whisper in her ear and I say, look, I think that uh, you really ought to go and approach X, Y, and Z and see if they want to join my new firm. And can you make sure it's all very nicely and carefully papered? so that it shows that you're the one who's making the recruitment approach. Your instructions will come from the new firm. Your remuneration will come from the new firm. And therefore, I'm in the clear. And that's the point at which I start tearing my hair out and say, not only is it no different to just you making the approach yourself, but actually all that it means is that if this is discovered, and it will be because it's obvious, then everybody new firm and recruitment consultant are brought into the claim as unlawful means conspirators. So that is not the way forward. Good advice. And so, David, moving on to what do you see going wrong in practice? So I suppose what we want to know is some war stories about what makes people trip up? What are the key things that people do in a team move situation which gets them into trouble? Thanks, Sarah. So the first thing I'd say is that um, if your partner looking to move here, I mean, you want to come out of this not just squeaky clean, but smelling lemon fresh as well, if you can, um, which unfortunately doesn't tend to happen. The first thing I would say is it's important to get some good advice before you start embarking on trying to conduct a team move or if you are the receiving firm taking part in that. In most of the cases, we deal with people come to us um, when it's sort of too late when they've already done a host of things um, to get themselves into difficulty so anyone who can seek some good professional advice you know beforehand and get the thing planned out and, and carried out properly uh, you know would be in a much better place i think in our experience we tend to find that you know if you've got a, a small number of partners moving together more generally that's perhaps going to be sort of accepted you know, if it were just a couple of partners who decide that they're going to move on for whatever reason. In lots of cases, that doesn't cause too many ripples. I have to say, it doesn't prevent the firm that's losing a team from getting all hypocritical about it and claiming to be outraged when they've just been doing exactly the same thing the week before and taking a team of people in the same sort of circumstances from another firm. But the thing that typically I find will, will really get the, uh, the, the firm that's losing the team upset is where the, the partners start raiding the associates, taking confidential information with them, 
course, you know, making approaches to clients and so on. It's those sorts of things that are most likely to be inflammatory. So ideally, clearly, partners should be avoiding contact with the employees and doing anything to encourage them to move. As Jonathan's just been saying, putting the onus on, you know, headhunters or recruiters, you know, effectively tipping them off and saying, these are the people you want and setting all of that up is again, a very bad move. I mean, it should really go without saying, but, you know, creating damaging documents. Now, I mean, you tend to assume these days that most people in these sorts of positions uh, mm-hmm. are fully aware that, you know, if they create anything, not just documentary, you know, hard copies lying around, but, you know, electronically, chances are it'll be found out. Certainly if it's on any sort of firm system equipment, there's a very good chance that the firm will carry out some investigations and uh, find it. But it still doesn't stop people doing pretty daft things. And recently I've dealt with cases where people have created, you know, planning documents for what they were going to do and accidentally, you know, found they were uploaded onto the the firm system and they were just sitting there with a full suite of, you know, PowerPoint slides about this great move they could all do and all the associates they would want to take with them. People sending texts to the associates' firm phone where it was likely to be found out. So things such as really asking for trouble. Thinking in advance about what a, a possible settlement strategy could be is a good idea. So what your way out will be if things turn nasty, the sorts of things you might be prepared to give in the way of undertakings or concessions if things start to turn a bit litigious. That's certainly good to think about. And really, I'd say avoid creating any unwanted and unpleasant surprises for the new firm. Now, that encompasses a lot of the things I've just been saying, but the new firm is not going to be very happy if it discovers that the team of partners has been going off on a bit of a frolic and and doing all sorts of things that are ill-advised and therefore possibly landing the new firm in in some difficulty as well. It would be usual to say to the partners moving to try and get some indemnities from the new firm to cover potential breaches. Um, There are lots of issues wrapped up in that. Uh, In most cases, we find that new firms are pretty resistant to that for for a whole number of reasons or give assurances without really wanting to commit anything to writing. So they might say, well, okay, we'll help you meet legal costs and so on without necessarily looking to meet any liabilities that may be incurred. So all of those sorts of things are things to think about, as I say, ideally doing it well in advance before embarking on anything stupid. Thanks, David. One final question before we move on from this question. Would you recommend that the individual members of the team get separate legal advice? When you say individual members, what you mean sort of each individual partner? Or? Yeah, each individual partner seeking to move together. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a difficult one. I think, you know, again, where you've got a small group of people who can really sort of trust each other, that's maybe not so bad. And, you know, very often you'll get a couple of people who will come along who will want some joint representation. Obviously, the danger with that is that if there is a split, there could be conflict issues that develop. And this is one of the problems often with team moves where they start to get a little bit bigger. And a couple of partners maybe think, well, actually, let's speak to this partner and that partner. And then the whole thing starts falling apart because one of them decides, actually, I don't want to move after all. And next thing, they're grassing up the other partners to the firm. So it's certainly one to think about carefully, I'd say. You'd have to look at the particular circumstances, and, and but certainly getting some separate advice you know, from the firm they're joining would be a good thing. Yeah. So thinking about then, you know, there's obviously a multiple of different risks for the team moving and a very difficult kind of line to tread. And in fact, a lot of people will tell you, you know, you just can't do a team move in kind of collaboration with one another without breaching a whole host of obligations. But some people will still go ahead and do it, notwithstanding that. And so if you are the firm who have just literally found out that three of your partners are taking five of your associates and are planning to take seven of your biggest institutional clients, 
what can you think about to protect yourself from this and also to respond to it? So we're going to briefly look at those two topics. So one, we'll look at what should you have had in place at the beginning? If you don't have it already, well, you'll know better next time. Um, and then we'll also look at like, what can you do in the moment in terms of, you know, when this is actually happening to you? So one who coming to you first, you touched already on some of the restrictive covenants that you might see in LLP agreements. What key things would you say to a firm looking to either draft their LLP agreement or review their LLP agreement to protect themselves from a team move? First, I would say, I mean, it might be difficult to completely protect yourself from a team move. I think once people have decided that they want to leave and if they want to leave in a team, that may eventually happen in one way or another. What you're looking at doing is sort of mitigating your risks and any damage that the firm might suffer, loss of clients. And so the sorts of provisions that you want to be putting into your agreement to help with that are around confidential information. And there you want to be quite specific. So you know what information is confidential to your firm, what's important to your firm. You know where it is and where it's stored. And the more specific those are, the easier it is to enforce those sorts of provisions. So if you've got a list of clients somewhere, we've got a particular type of database, put that into your confidential information clause. There's also including long notice periods so again this is not necessarily about stopping the move but it could be about mitigating against the risk so if you've got a long notice period combined with garden leave provisions that can keep somebody at least away from your clients and away from maybe the more junior employees that they may in that meantime be trying to talk to even though they shouldn't because it'd be in breach of their obligations but at least it gives you a little bit more control. You can put them in the garden. And with those sorts of clauses as well, you want them to be specific. So you want them to talk about restrictions on joining meetings, on participating in marketing, on voting. So, you know, all the things that you wouldn't want a partner who's essentially been disloyal to take part in, you want it to put that into the garden leave clause so that you're slightly protected, at least if they then go and leave. In that meantime, you're going to be putting in the work either trying to bed down the clients or speaking to the more junior employees and seeing if you can keep them. Some of the other things that I think Jonathan sort of touched on earlier, so some firms will put in actual contractual forfeiture provisions. So it's quite clear that if you breach, this is how much you're going to lose. And it tends to be in the financial services sector as well, that there tends to be lots of provisions linked to loss of your enumeration if you do breach. Uh, so, you know, carrying interest provisions will usually deal with what happens if you breach your post-termination restrictions and that can usually at least be a little bit of a stick so that you can get some negotiation going if you find out that a team is about to move and there is another two provisions that i'd like to mention one of which is a waiting room provision what that does is it prevents several people leaving all at once within a particular period of time so if one person gives notice to leave it kicks in a period of time where the next person that wants to leave has to wait essentially before they can do so for a particular period of time again maybe you're delaying the inevitable because that's just staggering people leaving it can also come into difficulty in terms of enforcement because sometimes what happens is those provisions trigger again and again and the one person who in 2015 wanted to leave is still here in 2020 waiting for their turn. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that's five years later. So those sorts of clauses are worth thinking about and specific anti-team move clauses as well, which prevent people leaving together and joining the same entity together. Again, there's difficulty with enforcing that. So people tend to put it in 
for it to be a means to delay people moving. So there'll be arguments over that usually as to whether or not it's enforceable, but at least in there could be a potential deterrent. So clauses like that, and then as you were talking about the post-termination restrictive covenants, and as Jonathan mentioned earlier, they tend to be, in at least in the partnership sphere, much longer than employee post-termination restrictive covenants. And so they're rife for arguing over because nobody wants to be stuck somewhere and trying to go to a new firm and they find that they can't actually go there for another 24 months. So those sorts of provisions will at least help give the firm who is on the receiving end something to negotiate with because at least it would be in their agreement to start with. Thanks, Monu. And Gail, what do you see as the biggest disincentive for people breaching their obligations? So in private equity, I think the biggest disincentive really, it's related to the compensation, which includes something called carried interest. And carried interest really is a share in the returns made on the investment. And those returns come very far into the future. So if you make an investment today, you might not actually get your share of the profits on that for five years. And so most private equity organizations have carried interest schemes in place. Now, actually, it's very interesting hearing everybody talk this morning because there are situations where a private equity firm might be quite pleased that some of the partners want to move. Partnerships can become very, very stagnant. And if we take into account lots of the things that people have said today, you know, time is a massive part of all of this. And if as a partner you can be patient about what you do and when you do it, then the best exit route by absolute far is to agree an exit with your organization. And so agreeing that exit will allow you to retain some of your financial incentive and will always have an element of time. You probably won't be able to go back into the market for 12 months or even maybe 24 months. But when we're talking about an industry where the returns come a long way in the future, that isn't always a disincentive. It's just something that you have to deal with. Another particular feature of private equity that makes it very peculiar is that many partners are key men or women for the fundraising for those partnerships. So again, they're really important to the partnership. So timing becomes really important as well. So when we see partners moving, it is almost always in a fundraising window. It's as one fund is coming to an end and it is before the next fund is being raised. And in that case, there is an opportunity to start negotiations to become a good lever from that organization. And frankly, it becomes more or less the only way a partner leaving is ever, ever going to work. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if it's the same in law, but, you know, I deal with people who every day are dealing with complex deal documentation. Have they read their contract? Not till it comes to the to the wire. <laughs> yeah, and I think we see that really commonly is that people have already done a huge amount of the activity that we're talking about and haven't even stopped to realise what their obligations are that they're subject to. And they might have even agreed to go and work somewhere starting in October and not realising that their covenants prevent them from doing that until the following October. And Rob, in terms of thinking about it from the acquiring firm, what is the driver for the discussion discussions around this are they driven by the legal risks or are they more focused on is this going to work from a commercial perspective i think it's more is this going to work from a commercial perspective but it's, it's perhaps useful just to consider the three perspectives that really could exist here one is from the point of view of who triggers this 
So is this something that a quarrying firm is triggering because they've identified a hole in their strategy or they've identified a team that they'd like to acquire for other reasons and they've approached the team? Or is it something that a team itself has triggered because they perhaps have lost faith in the firm and they think it's headed for the rocks and then they have to balance uh, all the problems that have been raised against where that road leads to anyway? I mean, compare it to bankruptcy ultimately or perhaps a forced merger. And it also may be that the existing firm is easing the team out because they are not a good fit for strategy anymore or they're underperforming or whatever. And in each case, of course, the, the suite of problems and the suite of solutions is slightly different. And I think from the perspective of an acquiring firm, using this as an opportunity to plug holes in their strategy, it's a potentially very powerful way of going about it. It's far better than simply hiring an individual, uh, unless that individual can operate without a larger team. And it's certainly less fraught with risk than a merger. So in balancing the risks, they may still come out on, you know, trying to get a team from somewhere else in spite of potential consequences. But the potential consequences need to form part of the due diligence process that they go through in assessing it. Yeah. And in terms of then moving on to, you know, if it does all blow up, you know, what are the likely remedies and David you already touched on the fact that you know you should have in mind what assessment might look like before you even start so that you sort of know where you might go with a negotiation what might that sort of resolution look like? Yeah so I mean and this is one of the the outcomes that's very common here and that's basically the two firms concerned eventually sort of getting together you know senior players in those firms to sort of thrash out some sort of deal which may well involve a relaxation of restrictive covenants in relation to the clients, particularly if a firm that's losing the team is going to be maintaining connections with those clients in another area. It doesn't want to be upsetting those clients by being too difficult about the team, you know, working with those clients when it's moved elsewhere. So very often there'll be some agreement around that. There may well be a deal reached around some form of payment made by the new firm to the old firm draw a line under everything and, and again sort of reflect what the old firm has lost. So that often you know, does happen that the team itself is the one making the move, but the firm that they're going to can often start taking the lead bit in the in the negotiations. And that's, you know, obviously, you know, depending on who you're acting for and you're the lawyer, you need to be making sure you're looking after your client's sort of interest, but very often it does sort of almost get taken out of your hands a little bit. And do you see firms using transfer of undertakings legislation to try and leverage their position? The firm that's just had the people move? Yeah, so this is an interesting little point and it's all to do with service provisions in Chupi. So essentially where you've got one firm performing work for a client, so let's say a team, this particular team that's moving performs the work in a certain area for a client. If that team moves to another firm, the client takes all that business with it to the new firm. And so there was potentially an argument here that this could amount to a, a chupy transfer because of this service provision change. And what that could mean, arguably, is that the employees who are in that team doing work for, for that client or those particular clients can get swept up as well. It's not quite so simple as saying, you know, we've got these employees, they're doing work for this client, they must therefore be transferred. But it certainly is a point, and I've certainly seen it happen in practice, that mm-hmm. the firm that's losing people might say, well, you've got to take these employees with you, and you, you are now the employer of these people, their liabilities you know, will go across. And that, that certainly can be a point mm-hmm. of negotiation. And it's a developing area as well. It's changed a bit over the last few years, and there's still sort of cases coming out as to who can be caught by this. Um, but it's a live issue. 
Thank you. I want to spend the last five minutes talking about integration once you get the team over. But before we move on, Jonathan, I just want to come back to you. We've heard a lot about, you know, the risks and whether people think those risks are the drivers or not. But a question that always gets put is, do those covenants which seek to prevent a team move, so the ones that Wanu talked about, so the anti-team move clauses, do they work? Are they enforceable? And should we be putting them in if we think they're maybe not enforceable? I think that they are difficult to enforce. I don't think that they are absolutely unenforceable in appropriate situations, but you don't find very much authority dealing with them, not least because in those instances where there have been an attempt to enforce them, they will have gone to arbitration. So I don't think there is any ethical difficulty with solicitors drafting those in partnership agreements, but I think one has to understand that they might be there really only in terrorem rather than necessarily with much of a hope of enforcing them. Where I think that there may be a more interesting prospect of stopping team moves is having minimum terms. Now, you often only see minimum terms in employment financial services situations. For example, most interdealer brokers will be employed with minimum terms. There is no reason why partners should not subscribe to terms whereby they agree not to give any notice of retirement before a particular date. If those fixed terms are appropriately staggered within a team and there is a strategy whereby at the end of the fixed terms the partnership intends to sign the partner up to a new fixed term perhaps with an incentive of some additional remuneration that's an extremely effective method of stopping team moves because it's always easier to enforce ongoing contractual obligations than it is post-termination covenants. So uh, yes, I have no difficulty with team move clauses. I think there is a prospect of them being enforceable, but fixed term arrangements are always a better strategy if the firm is comfortable with that. Thank you. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be scrubbing around in their LLP agreements after this thinking, shall we introduce those clauses? So once we've got over the difficulties and we've done a deal or successfully the team has moved, how do we then, from the firm's perspective of the acquiring firm, make sure that all this effort has been worthwhile and that this team is successful and effective? Rob, can you just share with us your sort of top tips for integrating that new partner team into the new firm? Well, uh, there's a solid piece of research that shows that you can tell with unerring accuracy how successful a team hire is going to be by looking at the level of collaboration between that team and other partners in the firm at eight to nine months after that team's joined the firm. So if there is an active flow of referral work between that team and others inward and outward, then the chances are that team hire is going to work. If there isn't, then it's not. And uh, this is hard empirical research. It's not something I've seen in firms. It's just there. The other point that's worth raising, also hard empirical research, done around these recovery programs that firms have to try to keep partners, you know, can we pay you more money, that type of thing. And uh, this research showed that over 80% of partners that express the intent to leave and are persuaded to stay, leave within two years anyway. So that's also worth remembering from the leaving firm's perspective. Mm -hmm chances are you have to work without them anyway. And in fact, when we were having discussion about this earlier, one of your key bits of advice was 
you know, once you think they're leaving, don't even bother trying to keep them, just try and keep your clients. Yeah, let them go and garden and work on the clients and fill the gap that they're leaving. And Gail, what do you see being the most effective strategies for integrating the team and making sure it's a success? So I agree uh, with everything Rob has just said. And in particular, if as the acquiring firm, all your attention is being given to the new incoming partners, you really are making a big mistake if you don't watch what's happening behind you. Because I can absolutely tell you that those people who are on partnership track in your existing organization are not going to be terribly happy about what's happening. So you really do have to think about how they are incentivized and motivated to work together. Just like Rob said, they can really, really make this not a successful integration. So, and then on a more positive front, what I would say the most important thing is make sure you're joining up with people who have exactly the same values as you have. I don't think culture matters so much. I think actually we're in a time where it's important that we embrace some elements of difference between people in our organization, but values have still got to be sound. Thank you. Uh, we've got uh, one minute. So I'm going to ask all of you, we've obviously covered quite a lot. There's a lot more that we could have discussed. I think when we were preparing this, we had about two hours of discussion rather than an hour of discussion. It's obviously a big topic. I'm going to ask each of you just to give me your sort of one top tip, either something that we haven't got to that you want to share or something that we have already covered. So starting with Rob, for your sort of final tip. Focus your integration efforts on collaboration, not so much on creating a business case with very, very objectives. It's what, in concrete, practical terms, does collaboration actually look like? I think you'll be able to tell a lot about the incoming team uh, by their reaction to such a discussion. And David? So much as we enjoy acting on injunctions, get advice early at the outset before you do. One I completely agree with David and I'd just say make sure that that advice actually guides your approach because it can make a difference in terms of how the actual team move turns out. And Gail, what would your key bit of advice be? Yes, I was going to say if you're going to take all these risks, at least bring some diversity to your business, not just more of the same. Yeah, and actually I, I thought the discussion we had preparing for this around that was really interesting and really um, relevant. Jonathan, what would you say to people planning a team move or people being about to be subject to a team move? It seems to me if you are a partnership, think simple. As much as you can try and include all sorts of complicated provisions in your members agreement, by far the best thing to do is just to have a straightforward, well-drafted, non-compete covenant because the courts have shown themselves incredibly willing to enforce them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we see a lot of kind of complex drafting, pages and pages and pages, but perhaps not necessary. Look, what's the point? Your best weapon is keeping that partner out of the market for six months or possibly even 12, given the very relaxed attitude of the courts at the moment, the enforcement of non-compete covenants. And that serves back to Rob's point, which is that allows you to better protect your clients because you've kept them out of the market. And we've got two questions. Actually, I'll pick up first of all, a comment that we've had so somebody has said that don't forget about the client so if they want to join the partner who is moving then there's nothing you can do about it and I think that's probably something we all identify with in doing this in practice is client power and actually particularly where you have large clients who will often instruct a number of different entities anyway um, and this happens a lot in the private equity sector a lot of the time it'll be institutional investors or in our 
line of work of institutional clients where they're going to choose where to either put their money, well, put their money, but either whether that's by legal instruction or investment, they have the kind of control. So I think that's a very good point. Two quick questions, which we will just cover off. The first one is one for you, I think, Jonathan. And someone's asked us, does the decision in Rehan against EY Global set a new benchmark for partner damages when wrongfully terminated, or is it a one-off decision? I suppose, first of all, we should just check whether this relates to team moves or whether we've slightly strayed into different territory. It doesn't relate to team moves. And the judge himself, I think, recognising that he was doing something that was pretty unprecedented, said that the case should be regarded as an outlier with a factual basis that will rarely, if ever, again occur. It's a pretty simple answer. Yeah. Uh, Rehan is not going to be a game changer for any of us. Another question we've had is about whether or not if one team has moved already, they are more likely to move. And I'll come to Rob in a second on this, but before I do, it's interesting that Gail was saying uh, before we jumped on this morning that something has been reported that a team has moved and then pretty quickly, a number of months later, gone immediately back to where they came from. Rob, do you think that once a team has done one move, there's a higher propensity to move again? Yes, definitely. And it depends on how portable the book of business is. We see it more in some areas than uh, practices uh, than in others. I think a firm leaving and then going back to the original firm is a very interesting one. And it also that does speak to the culture of the firm. Some firms have got a far more transactional culture, far less collegial, and it's all about the money. And in a firm like that, one can imagine partners coming and going. In a more collegial firm, which would typify the typical British firm, I'd submit, there's an expectation for more loyalty than that. So it would possibly be more difficult. Another final question that we've had is around the issue that David, you touched on about separate representation for different people. And we'd discussed, I think you'd said that you would always recommend that the firm acquiring the team is separately represented to the team itself. Any more thoughts about for different elements of the team? You know, whether, for example, you would have one lawyer for the partners as a group and one lawyer for non-partners or whether, in fact, everybody should potentially be individually represented. There are obviously very sort of you know practical issues with that. On the whole, I've certainly found if you're talking about partners, and it's usually the partners getting advice, like to be represented sort of jointly from a cost point of view, for one thing, because I mean this is expensive stuff. I think it does depend on where you're coming in the process and mm. um, whether you're getting advice at an early stage or later on. As I say, one of the risks is that you have people as a group early on, and maybe if it's a slightly larger group, and then then one of them starts breaking off for some reason or gets turned by the firm. And then you could find yourself in, in, in a lot of difficulty as the advisor because you're conflicted potentially and, and find yourself being able to have many of them and they've all got to go off and get separate advice. So I, I can see the benefit in, in doing that. It, it, it is you know, something that's got to be weighed up, I think, looking at the situation you're dealing with. Um, and very often you'll get teams who will work together for years. You might get a very close unit who, you know, who've moved before and will move again. And you can't see there being any split potentially coming there. In those sorts of small groups, usually they'll want to be advised jointly rather than do their own separate advice. And I think what you say about what process you're at is really relevant because, in fact, what we often see is that we often, as you say, get instructed and it's almost too late because lots of breaches have already happened and the people have already acted together and actually exposed themselves to the number of risks that Jonathan and Wanu were picking up on. And by that stage, the issue becomes less relevant. Whereas if you're right at the beginning and you can actually stop any concerted effort or concerted acting together then there's maybe more of a case for separate representation on an individual basis 
Yeah, that's it. And I think, you know, we'd often see cases where that's in a US firm, you get the big cheese, you know, we're flying from New York and, and sit down and grill the associates and try to divide the team up. These days, they're probably just going to have to be, you know, zoomed into your bedroom or your kitchen or wherever you are and uh, try to convince you there that you shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. And that's a whole other session on whether or not Zoom is an effective medium to interview people, to uh, grill people, to hold investigations. So we'll leave that for another day. Thank you all very much for listening and um, we really appreciate you all joining us and for the questions that you sent through and thank you so much to the panellists. Thank you Rob, David, Jonathan, Wanu and Gail for sharing your really valuable expertise and importantly your experience of these matters with everybody this morning. We really appreciate it. So thank you all very much and we look forward to seeing you at one of our future events.